0: of Bible churches, is, uh, it's pretty typical for us to, uh, to teach expositional preaching, uh, which um, is most often associated with going through a, a book from, imagine this, from beginning to end. Uh, and uh, and it's, it's good for a lot of reasons um, one of it is, is that, um, and that's not this morning, but sometimes it forces you to preach on things you'd rather not preach. Uh, and, uh, and, and yet, all of Scripture is inspired and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for reproving, for correcting. Correct? Uh, and so we have to get to the things that, um, uh, that maybe aren't in our wheelhouse. Uh, but one of the weaknesses of expositional preaching is that it can be hard to remember where we've already been right if uh, if you're spending a year and a half uh, in uh, in the book of Romans, uh, I don't know about you, but my memory isn't what it used to be uh, i I think it isn't i really I can't remember if it is or not but uh, but that's one of the weaknesses so one of the things that i've I've done for our study through first Peter is in the bulletin we have the notes page, and I've been keeping kind of broad strokes on the top that kind of show the sections that we've been at that's just so. Uh, it's a test for you uh, to go through it and go now do I remember that Uh, because um, uh, I I had a a mentor of mine was a pastor and he said he always wanted to preach a sermon that people would never forget and he said about a month into ministry he realized that was ridiculous and he said now that he's been doing it for a few decades he hopes people remember it by the time they get to their car Uh, and so uh, you know set the bar low and you won't be disappointed That's, uh, that's the key to happiness right Uh, No, that is not the key to happiness. That was a test, and you failed. All right, so, uh, no, you did great. Uh, So what we're going to do this morning, first of all, is we're just going to do a little bit of review so we'll understand where we are in the letter. Uh, And so uh, the thrust of this letter of 1 Peter is helping Christians that are in constant conflict with their culture. Isn't God's word amazing that it was written 2,000-some years ago, and our believers still in conflict with their culture? Absolutely. So this, this letter is as relevant as the, as the day it was written. Uh, the world is against Christ, and therefore it is going to be against those who follow Christ as disciples. The church needs instruction and encouragement while being foreigners and strangers in this world. We will not be understood by our culture. We should not fit in, nor should we become too comfortable with how the world operates. We need instruction and encouragement. The first section was the believer's salvation. Peter starts his letter by making sure the Christians know about their salvation. We have a future guaranteed inheritance. We have a faith that is being refined by trials and difficulties in the present. Because of that, we know that our faith is dependable, and that's why it's so important to understand our salvation. In the past, our salvation was fascinating to the prophets who received the prophecy concerning the Christ, but didn't know who fulfilled the prophecy or how the prophecies would be fulfilled. They longed to look into it. Angels also find our salvation fascinating. They long to look into how God brings about sinful people's salvation. That was understanding and knowing our salvation. The next section was the believer's holiness. It dealt with a call for personal holiness. Because we represent God, because we are foreigners, strangers in this world, we are here as ambassadors, and we represent God. Because he is holy, as his ambassadors, what do we need to be? Holy. Our holiness is expressed in how we love one another. If you were here for that sermon, do you remember the filthy five that must not define us or be a part of our practice as a church when we love one another? In chapter 2, verse 1 of First Peter, it said, "...so put away, here are the filthy five." So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. That's how we love one another. Sometimes love isn't what we do. Sometimes love is what we don't do. Right? The next thing we saw, and this was just a couple weeks ago, was the believer's identity. An important truth we learned. We are not what the world says we are. We are what God says we are. I am who God says I am. The pressure the world imposes on Christians is to treat us like we are foolish in following Christ and His Word, the Bible. Persecution happens because Christians are not—they're not what—they're not, uh, what, not worth much in this world. That's the uh, the attitude that is always being given against Christians not not worth much in this world uh, a few years ago Ken Ham debated uh, Bill Nye uh, and took a tour along the the ark uh, and uh, and asked if uh, basically asked do followers of God's word uh, are they do they have value in science and Bill Nye's response was basically no how could you if you're so foolish enough to believe that that a distant being created the galaxies and the universe, then how in the world would you ever be beneficial in science? And Bill's Nye response was to show all of the believers in Christ and believers in God's word and all of the discoveries that have been made and all of the inventions that have come forth through scientific principles by Christians. Uh, But but Bill Nye represents what the world thinks about those of us who believe that God created everything with, with just a word. And that is not worth much. So the world puts that constant pressure to where you can feel like maybe I am what they say I am. Maybe following Christ is a foolish endeavor. Uh, maybe I am not worth much. Maybe I am ridiculous. Maybe I do believe in myths and, and fairy tales. And, and, and maybe I'm not intelligent. Or I want to be intelligent. So I, if I'm going to be considered intelligent, then I need to believe and promote things that are against what God's word says. And that constant pressure can affect how you see yourself, can affect your identity. And everybody is looking for an identity. Our identity, believer, is in Christ. That is our identity. We are who God says we are. Uh, so when you are being told that you're not worth much if you follow Christ uh, and, uh, and follow his word, um, you can find people who have experienced difficulty and persecution. Even, I bet, in our own church right here, we have people who have experienced difficulties with families and friends because they have decided to follow Jesus. There might not be physical harm, but perhaps there could have been, but subtle comments and a feeling of not belonging does occur. Society certainly makes you feel like you are wasting your time when you fellowship with a church and study God's Word. But this is what God says you are, believer. He says you are a chosen people. That's relationship. He says you are a royal priesthood. You have access to God, direct access to God. You don't have to go through an intermediary. It's nice that we pray for one another, correct? Right? And if you have a prayer request and you, and you want me to pray about something, um, I'm happy to pray for it. right? But don't ever get into the mindset that I have more access to God than you do. Because you are a royal priest. You have direct access to the Father. When Jesus was crucified, what happened to the veil? Torn in two. You now have access to the holy, the holy place of God. God also says, believer, that you are a holy nation, you are set apart, set apart, and that you are God's very own possession. He treasures you. That's who you are, and we are who God says we are. We're going to start a new section this morning, and it's going to take us five or so weeks to get through it, but this section is the believer's witness. What are we supposed to do? As, uh, as people who are in conflict with our culture. Uh, it's tempting to build a great big city with big walls and feel safe and protected all the time, isn't it? Let me go to a safer place. Let me not feel vulnerable. Let, I, I don't particularly enjoy treat, having people treat me like I'm, I'm foolish or dumb or, or less worthwhile. Let me go someplace where I'm appreciated. That's the temptation. But that is not what we are called to do. So as we consider this, let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, help us as we look into your word to understand what your thoughts are, that we'll adopt them for our own, that we'll learn something about you in the process, and that we'll be obedient, being faithful to you. Thank you for your patience as uh, as we grow and learn Uh, And become what you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. We're only going to do two verses this morning. And the idea for this is witness by separation. Witness by separation. I have often wondered, and maybe you have wondered as well, uh, especially when facing difficulties, why didn't God just beam me up? when I got saved instead he left me here well god has an interesting plan that's a very interesting plan in 1 corinthians 127 paul wrote but god chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise god chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong we are the foolish weak thing God has chosen to use us to carry out his will when you don't feel up to the task that is when you are perfect for God to use if your attitude or my attitude becomes I got this we probably need to sit that one out probably need to sit that one out you know what's great about spiritual gifts what are we dependent upon for spiritual gifts the spirit the spirit So when we are feeling weak and foolish and not up to the task, God says, that's what I want to use. That's what I want to use. Because if we feel like we have it all put together, and then it goes well, who gets the credit? We do. But if I'm depending on God, because I don't feel up to the task, and and truthfully, I'm not up to the task. By the way, you, you know you voted yes for a pastor who is absolutely not up to the task right? You know that. If you don't know, just wait. You'll figure, you'll figure it out. When we're not up to the task and God uses that, who gets the credit? God does, which is what we want. In Romans ten fourteen through 17, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You know what? God uses the foolish things of the world. Proof. God uses preaching. As a preacher, sometimes I've never seen anything more foolish. And God says, How are they going to hear without someone telling them? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. We are to witness. We are to witness. Uh, That is what we are supposed to do when we are in a culture that is against us. When we are in a culture that is against us, one of the things we need to do is to witness. That's why we didn't get beamed up. That's why we are here. Not that God needed us, but God in his wisdom said, this is the method that I'm going to use. It was God's choice to use us to make his word and his good news of salvation known. So that's why we are here. So that's where we're going to spend a few, a few weeks dealing with our witness. Uh, now there are truths that everyone knows about God through creation uh, in Romans 1 it makes it clear it talks about that um, you know atheists claim to not believe in God after reading Romans 1 I don't believe in atheists it says that that everyone knows these truths because of creation they simply suppress what they know and they claim to not know it, but has been made evident to them. So I don't believe in atheists. They don't exist. Uh, they exist only, only in, in, uh, in their claim, but not in reality. There are things that we can know about God through creation. Uh, but I'm going to show you a picture that demonstrates something. All right, It demonstrates an obvious truth. What do you know about this turtle? What do you know? You know that he didn't get up there by himself, right? You might not know anything else about turtles. You might not be an expert in turtles. I'm not. Uh, I think turtle soup is delicious. That's about as much as I know. Um, The one thing I know, though, about when I look at this picture is I know beyond any shadow of a doubt the turtle did not get there on its own. To believe that a multitude of galaxies came into existence on their own is much more ridiculous than thinking that a turtle got on the fence post all by itself. But as much as creation reveals about God, reveals truths about God, you could never look at a tree and think, and this is the whole thought, I bet there is a holy God that is offended by my sin. I do think you can know that by observing creation. I think you could logically come to that conclusion. Uh, But... I don't think you could come, well, maybe you could come to the conclusion and that because God is offended by my sin, that justice demands my death. But here's where I don't think there's any way looking at a tree you could ever come to this conclusion. I bet this creator of everything came to earth and took on flesh so that God himself could be the one who dies in my place. You could look at a tree for decades and never come to that, right? Uh, This Savior was probably named Jesus. And he rose again to life three days after his death, proving that God the Father was satisfied by that payment for sin. Probably, if I trust in Christ, or trust in, in, uh, in him alone, the Father will reckon to me the righteousness of his Son, and I can live eternally with all three members of the Godhead. We're never going to come to that conclusion by looking at creation. There's a lot we can know about God, but we could never know that. We could never know that. What we can know about God through creation is enough to condemn us, but it is not enough information to save us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. God has chosen to use us as the conduit for his life-changing word, and we have the privilege of being a witness to what Jesus has done for our eternity when he died for our sins and rose from the grave. One final thought before we begin the next section on witnessing. We don't save anyone. That's God's job. That's God's job. Uh, There's a message on a a church marquee that I would drive by and on it, and I understand what they were trying to promote, and I appreciate what they were trying to to promote, uh, but at the same time, it was the wrong thought. And on that marquee was written, Will anyone be in heaven because of you? I wanted to call them up and say, no. <laughs> no, not one. I can't save anyone. That is the work of God. Our job is to be a faithful witness. So, therefore, our success is based on faithful testimony, not on the outcome. You understand that, please? It takes all of the stress and pressure off of you when you realize. My success isn't based on if this person believes and, and trusts Christ as Savior. That's not, that's not success for me. That's, that's God's work to bring people to himself. My job, if I am a faithful witness, I am successful. I have, I have done what God has, has called me to do. And I will leave the saving to him. Yeah. So with that in mind, let's start the next section. It says in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The first time I went through this, the first few times I went through this, I completely skipped over the first word and missed its significance. And that word is beloved. Beloved. Using the word beloved accomplishes two feats, two tasks. One is it shows a start of a new section, as, uh, as taking this kind of as a, a grammar approach to the letter. Um, a lot of times, new sections, new thoughts are identified um, with with certain repeated words. And in the, in First Peter, uh, the word "beloved" is used to separate sections. Um, so it's significant for that reason. It's it's saying, "All right, we're 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 changing a little bit here. We're changing we're changing directions here." Uh, the second thing that it does is it transitions between two sections. Before this, we had the believer's identity. This one word gives you an identity. What is your identity? One who is loved by God. One who is loved by God. It says, you who are loved by God, or because you are loved by God, or let the fact that you are loved by God be motivation for, and then fill in the rest. But it goes on to say, beloved, I urge you as... Sojourners and exiles, again, our identity, saying, uh, uh, you who are loved by God, but not the world. You who are loved by God, but not the world. And then it gives us the the instruction from that. Uh, When the church talks about separation and the the title for the sermon was Witnessed by Separation, many assume that we are talking about separation from the world, the idea of being unequally yoked with an unbeliever. That is not what is meant by separation in this context. The idea isn't build a wall and keep to yourself. Um, The Bible doesn't ask us to do that, doesn't want us to do that. Uh, It says, in fact, you, you can't do that. You can't escape the unbelieving world. Uh, how are we to witness if we uh, don't have interaction? Right? There's no way to do it. Uh, this is, but this is not what is meant by separation in this context. Uh, in 1 Peter, we use the term separation. If you, if you go through commentaries and other, other books, it'll talk about separation. Is the idea that the believer needs to separate uh, or to abstain from the passions of the flesh. To separate yourself from the passions of the flesh we witness to our unsaved neighbors and friends by not acting according to the desires of our old sinful nature it is contrary for the believer to be saved from the penalty of sin but proceed as though we are still under the authority of sin why choose to be a slave when you have been set free when christ was crucified our old nature was crucified with him our flesh was defeated. And Galatians 5:24 says, "And those who belong to Christ, Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires." So when we are to abstain from the flesh, from the old nature, we have to come with it with the idea that we are already victorious. We're already victorious. Our old nature has been crucified with Christ. It's, it's been killed. It doesn't have that authority anymore, uh, which is great news, and at the same time, a little frustrating. Here's why it's great news. I don't have to sin anymore. The old nature has been crucified. I don't, it's, I don't have to sin anymore. Here's the frustrating part. I still sin. Right? Uh, and it's not because I'm not given a choice. It is because I need to abstain from the desires of the flesh. Recognize that the old nature has already been defeated. But how do we overcome the wicked desires of the flesh? How do we overcome that? In Romans, (coughs) excuse me, in Romans 13, 14, it says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We have to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a mental switch we make when we put on Jesus. There's a mental switch we make. Is there certain things that you've ever put on that, that change your mind, that change your, your mindset maybe is a better way? Um, I, you know, I, as a, as a stress former athlete, uh, there was something about putting on a uniform, right? A switch was made when you put on a uniform. Uh, didn't matter what sport it was, there was nothing quite like lacing up the cleats, right? And, uh, and then you get ready to come out of the, uh, the locker room for, for a football game and helmet on, right? And that would be the call that, that you would always helmet on, um, coaching this this, uh, past season at Hanville on away games. Helmet on when you leave the locker room and walk to the bus. And once the bus gets out of view of the school, the guys could take their helmet off. But as soon as we got to the away game, as soon as we saw the other school, the call goes on. The call goes out. Helmets on. And all the guys put their helmets on. And it's just, all right, it's time to go to battle. Putting it on, it, it, it makes a difference. Uh, when, when you're, you know, for, for getting married, you know, when you, when you put on that coat, I remember thinking, here we go, All right? <laughs> here we go. Uh, and uh, I, I, think, I think that does it. How many of you ever put something on to be comfortable and relax? All right? You, you have the th- Here we are instructed, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put him on. Here's the best example I could, I could give about that and how it affects things. As a teenager, I would I'd go to the movie with some friends, and my mom would ask what movie we were going to go see. And sometimes we legitimately didn't know. It was like, I oh, will figure it out when we, when we get there. And my mom, she was so corny. She would say, is it a movie you would take Jesus to see? can you think of a more corny mom thing to say than that? And it worked. That's the part that always bugged me. It worked. Uh, I would would be in a a movie and a scene would come on and I'd hear her words, if Jesus were sitting next to you, would you be watching this movie? And as a teenager, I remember one time in particular, I went, she's so corny. Then I stood up and I walked out. And I said, Mom! you know, She knew what she was doing. She knew what she was doing on that. But that's the idea. If I'm going to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that's going to separate me from sin. It's going to separate me from the desires of the flesh. I'm going to abstain from the desires of the flesh. Uh, Mentally put on Jesus and take him with you. And then it says in this verse in, in Romans, make no provision for the flesh. Don't accommodate the flesh don't give it consideration to make the flesh happy don't plan ways to gratify sinful desires wrong thoughts are going to pop into our heads they are they're going to pop into our heads we are surrounded in a culture that glorifies sin it's going to to pop into our heads We can dismiss those thoughts. The real problem comes when we start to plan out our sinful desires. If I do this, then I can do this thing without getting caught, and nobody will know. Sinful thoughts planned out lead to sinful actions. Instead, we need to starve out the flesh. We don't need to feed it to make it stronger. We don't want to fertilize weeds. And that happens. I had it explained to me this way. Someone said, you've got two dogs in the fight. One is desiring spiritual things, and the other is desiring fleshy things. The dog you feed is the dog that wins. And that always resonated with me. Don't make provision for the flesh. Starve it out instead. Getting back to 1 Peter 2 with these verses, it gives us two reasons to abstain from fleshy desires. Two reasons to abstain from fleshy desires or fleshy passions. One is fleshy passions wage war. They wage war. The war that is waged is against your soul. James 4.1 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fight among you? This is talking to To the church, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? We are in a war with ourselves. We really are. Uh, The believer has three enemies. The devil, the world, and ourselves. My biggest problem is Chris Berg. If I could just deal with that guy. I'd have a lot more success. There is a war going on, a war going on within myself, and there are battles all the time. There are constant battles. The sinful flesh of the old nature battles against your spiritual growth and walk with Christ. In the media and amongst celebrities, we have people who claim a spiritual connection with God but at the same time live to please the flesh. Many of these people claim to enjoy fellowship with Christ, but to be spiritually inclined and an authority in others' walks with Christ, all while indulging sinful desires. I did a quick search this week. I looked at Reverend Jesse Jackson and Reverend Al Sharpton, and an actual favorite of mine, Ravi Zacharias. Some of these men may have always been pretending. Some lost the battle against fleshy desires. The point is is that the old nature is in a war with the new nature. Recognize the war and count the cost. And then it says, it'll keep your conduct honorable. Reasons to abstain, because there are fleshy passions. The fleshy passions wage war against us in our spiritual walk. And another reason to abstain is to keep our conduct honorable. Keep our conduct honorable. It is important in our witness to have God-honoring behavior. Philippians 2.15 says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Believers need to stand out from a crooked, wicked culture. That doesn't mean fake it. Alright, that is not what this is, when it says that we are to be salt and light, a lot of times we misinterpret that and we say, alright, I will pretend. No, that's not salt, that's ketchup. When something tastes bad, you load it with ketchup, right? We're not to be ketchup, we're to be salt. Salt brings out natural. Uh, Faked is when this is horrible, let me smother it. So we need to stand out. Uh... If you are abstaining from fleshy desires and desire to abstain from fleshy desires, even when it doesn't go well for us, uh, it'll show our desires. Our desires will still show that we are wanting to be God-honoring. And when we do make a mistake, we own up to it. And we say, that was sin. And that wasn't what God wants. And I'm going to trust God to clean that up in my life. We don't want to fool them for Jesus. Jesus. Right? There's a lot of ministries out there that if they were being honest, they, they would call themselves, fool them for Jesus' ministries. We don't want to do that. Uh, nor is 1 Peter 2, 11-12 demanding perfection. We are being perfected, but we are far from perfect. A life that is dedicated to Christ will not, uh, will not let the, f- the flesh will, will, uh, will, sh- will abstain from it. And, uh, and when we're dedicated to Christ, it'll, it'll be evident. It'll be seen. There was a song written in the uh, early 90s. Uh, a group called Newsboys released a song called Shine. And here was the, the chorus to that, to that, very simple, uh, to that song. Shine, make them wonder what you've got. Make them wish that they were not on the outside looking board. Shine, let it shine before, before all men. Let them see good works, and then let them glorify the Lord. That's what we want to do. Uh, That is the goal of honorable Christian conduct. Will our question, will will our culture overwhelmingly approve of honorable conduct? Will our culture overwhelmingly approve of honorable conduct? No. The answer is no. The world will not accept Christ willingly. Revelation tells us that when Christ returns, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That doesn't mean they'll all be happy about it. Uh, At the end of the millennial reign of Christ, and we read this in, in Revelation, the culture will revolt against the Holy One of God after being led by the only perfect government the world has ever seen. And they will be defeated. Our culture does not approve of Christian conduct. The world will fight it on the outside or corrupt it from within. When it seems like society accepts Christianity, it is only for the purpose of corrupting it. I was part of a Christian organization whose slogan was, change the campus, change the culture. Uh, And I was with that organization because it got me into the high schools, which is where I was wanting to go. Uh, But I often disagreed with the approach of this particular ministry uh, because I recognized the goal isn't to change the culture, Right? That's not the goal. I never bought into that. Our honorable conduct isn't going to change the culture. It is to save a life for eternity. That's the goal. That's the goal, is to save a life for eternity. Honorable conduct is used by God to bring individuals to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So don't let our goal be, this is going to change the culture. It won't. But God might use that honorable conduct to bring a lost sinner to saving faith. That's If we change the culture but people are still going to hell, what have we accomplished? Right? We want to save save eternities. Two results of honorable conduct, people will see good deeds. It will be seen. 2 Corinthians 8.21 says, For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. Why is it important for unsafe people to see good works from Christians? As we mentioned, God uses honorable conduct to convict the world of sin and the need for a Savior. But there is another reason that is very practical. In Titus 2.8 it says, And sound speech that cannot be condemned, speaking about our speech, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing to evil, nothing evil to say about us. Either an opponent of Christianity will be unable to do the thing they want to do, which is speak against Christ, or when they do speak against Christ or Christians, others will know not to give their condemnation serious consideration. Others will know the accusations aren't true. But the second reason, or the second outcome, is that it will glorify the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your, shi- let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to To your Father who is in heaven. Both Jesus and Peter instruct their followers to conduct themselves well for the purpose of bringing glory to the Father. When Jesus said it and was recorded in Matthew, and then when Peter wrote, having heard those words from Jesus, it's no accident that Peter wrote these words. This is what the instruction he received from Jesus. There is no greater purpose than to glorify God or to cause others to give God glory. The last part of this verse, of this section, uses the phrase, on the day of visitation. On the day of visitation. It says, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. On the day of visitation is tricky to understand. I studied what it meant for a long time, and I still don't feel confident and understanding exactly what is meant. This is why I love the biblical concept of the priesthood of the believer, because that means that you have the right, the privilege, and the responsibility to study it for yourself. Uh, And so that is your assignment this week. What exactly is meant in this context when it says the day of visitation? Um, The day of visitation means the coming of divine power, either for benefit, or judgment and I don't know in this context exactly which it is if it's to the benefit which means salvation or on the day of, of judgment when they'll stand before when everybody will stand before before the judge um, I'm not sure exactly when this is I said I've it's an obscure word that is used it's only used one other time in, in scripture and it's when um, when Jesus was coming to Jerusalem and uh, and he's coming over the Mount of Olives and he he looks across the valley onto, onto the temple that's right there, and he looks at it, and, and he begins weeping. He begins weeping because he knows what's about to happen. Uh, in Luke 19, it says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, and surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. That's the only other time in Scripture that this word is used. Um uh, and I'm not sure if this if this context if it's talking about on the day they get saved, they'll glorify God because of the day because they saw your conduct and and God used your your honorable conduct for uh, for advancing the good news of jesus christ and and God convicted them through it and then through through your testimony uh, the Holy Spirit worked and and they moved from death to life uh, on the day that that you know the God's appointed time when he came and supervised them when he when he oversaw it when he visited them. It could be that that's what this is talking about, but it could also be on the day where they stand before God as a lost sinner who rejected the good news of Jesus Christ that they'll think back to the oh so and so they lived the truth and and they they lived the gospel and and um you know they did what was honorable, and and I only did what I wanted to do to please my own flesh. But they they operated differently, and and it will, God will use that to condemn. I don't know which one it is. Um, I don't know. It's it's. I'm going to keep studying it, and I hope I hope you study it with me. But this is what I do know. There is a day when we'll all stand before Christ. Believers will stand before the bema seat of Christ. The bema seat is is the. It's the same. At a track meet when they would award medals and, and put it on the the, uh, the 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 conquering athletes around their neck would place this this medal that's the Bema seat and believe it we're going to stand before christ and, uh, and he's going to um, he's going to award us reward us for for what we what we accomplished for him isn't it amazing we couldn't do it without him, and then he gives us uh, commendation for having done what we couldn't have done without him. That's how gracious and merciful our God is, and he's going to be so happy for us. That day is coming, believer. I'm looking forward to that day. Uh, there aren't any participation trophies, right? But there are, are medals to be, to be received from Christ by which we will worship him with. But if there's anybody who doesn't know Christ as their Savior, there is a day coming when you will be overseen by Christ, but it won't be at the Bema Seat of Christ. It'll be at the great white throne judgment. And he will look into the the Lamb's book of life, and all the names of those who have trusted Christ as Savior will be found in that book. But if you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, your name isn't in that book. And after, after, after Christ looks in that book and doesn't find your name there, it says there are other books. There are other books. Books where your works have been recorded. And he will open up those books and he'll say, let's go through your life and see how you stack up. And it will be made known all of the ways that we have fallen short of the glory of God. If you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, you do not want him to look through your works and the books that have been recorded and judge you accordingly. You see, this is something that for those of us that have trusted Christ that we know, we're not less sinners. We just have a great Savior. And we so want you to know that Savior too. We want you to know. Not wish, not hope, not fingers crossed maybe. God's word says you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. If you don't know this morning, I've got all the time in the world to show you in God's word, not my word, in God's word, what you must do to be saved, what you must do to spend eternity with Christ. When the day of visitation comes, you don't want to guess. You'll want to know. And it's only through Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, as we go through this section on what is honorable conduct and, and how to witness to a culture that is against us, help us to stay humble. Help us to recognize it's not our greatness, it was your son's greatness. It's not our perfection, it was his perfection, and that we will gladly take the test of how you saved us to those in our world, those in, in our surroundings, uh, and that our success will not be based on what you do with it, but our success is based on in being faithful. Father, help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.